so today we come to the fourth commandment, which is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And of all the Ten Commandments, this one has to be the most controversial. In this day and age, most churches, certainly here in Barbados, don't believe that there's any Sabbath commandment applicable to Christians in the New Covenant. And those that do, often also have gospel distortions in other ways, like the Seventh-day Adventists, where there's a mixture of law-keeping and trusting Christ uh, toward justification. And so many Christians look at churches that have a distorted view of the gospel and yet also profess to keep the Sabbath. And so they associate the Sabbath with this legalism. And so they throw it out altogether. Or churches have a view of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New that leads to a despising of the Sabbath because they view the Old Testament as basically being uh, law and in the New Testament we've moved beyond law supposedly to be under grace and so in the way that they conceive of it there is no law applicable to Christians but many would say but the law of love which is taught in the New Testament and so or they will say that only the nine commandments are only nine of the commandments are explicitly taught in the New Testament, and so those are the only ones that we have to obey. And as the argument goes, the fourth commandment is not taught in the New Testament, and so we don't have to obey it. In any case, these are just a few brief overviews. But suffice it to say, there's a lot of controversy about this fourth commandment in this day and age. But this is not the case in ages past. It's actually relatively new to not see the Ten Commandments as the perpetual moral law of God. That's a relatively new development in church history. It was pretty much a settled consensus until relatively recently that the Ten Commandments were indeed a summary of God's law. Listen, for example, to the Puritan Samuel Rutherford, a Scottish delegate to the Westminster Assembly. He said this, The law is yet to be preached, as tying us to personal obedience, whatever antinomians say on the contrary. So in that day and age, it was just assumed, this is what's right, and if people don't think that the law is applicable and don't think that the law is to be preached, they're antinomians. And that was pretty much a settled consensus until relatively recently in church history. So what I'm bringing you today is actually not something that's new. What I'm actually bringing you today is something that's old. In those days of Samuel Rutherford and throughout most of church history, the sort of resistance that is raised these days to the Ten Commandments was soundly and roundly rejected as serious antinomian or anti-law error. And it's not just history upon which we reformed rest our case, but in the first introductory message to this series, which you can find on our website, it's entitled Make Friends with God's Law, In the first introductory message, I demonstrated much more importantly that the scripture itself teaches the perpetual validity of the Ten Commandments as a guiding set of rules, even for Christians who are justified by free grace in Christ alone. The Ten Commandments are a summary of God's law, binding upon all people at all places and in all times, even those under the New Covenant. And objections raised against that proposition don't hold up under close scrutiny. 
And if objections to the Ten Commandments as a whole don't hold up under scrutiny, then it follows that objections to any particular one don't hold up either. Therefore, the Fourth Commandment is, in spite of all the controversy, just as binding as the other nine upon all people in all places at all times, including Christians in the New Covenant. So how and when, then, are we to observe the Sabbath in the New Covenant? This is the subject of today's message, some teaching, some exposition on this commandment. And we'll walk through a selection of scriptures pertaining to the Sabbath, And by the time we're done, it should be clear that the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith is on point when it says this. God has particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto Him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. And then also, the 1689 says... The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, but are also taken up the whole time in public and private exercises of His worship and in duties of necessity and mercy. So in other words, to condense those things down, we are to spend all day on Sunday in worship. Except when we have duties of necessity and mercy to attend to. That's the historic Reformed position. We are to spend all day on Sunday in worship, except when we have duties of necessity and mercy to attend to. That's the historic Reformed position, and of course the Reformed would argue that position from Scripture itself. So let's walk through the scriptures, trying to demonstrate this point. Beginning with Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, we read this. Beginning at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. Then, remember what I just read you from Exodus chapter 20. Verse 11 says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, here we have a clear, irrefutable statement that the Sabbath was instituted in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. The Sabbath was not instituted at Mount Sinai. So many people argue that the Sabbath was only for the Israelites, that God gave it only to the Israelites, that He instituted it at Mount Sinai when He put them under the Mosaic Covenant. But what we see here very clearly is that the Sabbath was instituted at creation. So before, before the ancestor of the Israelites, Israel, that was his name, or Jacob, before he was even born, there was a Sabbath day. Which should be fairly obvious then that the Sabbath was obviously for more than simply just the Israelites. Again, the, 
Scriptures teach us uniformly that the Ten Commandments are a summary of God's moral law, which is binding on all people everywhere. That means it predates the Mosaic Covenant. The Ten Commandments applied to people before the Mosaic Covenant. And it means that the Ten Commandments apply to people after the Mosaic Covenant. It applied to people who were not in the Mosaic Covenant, like Philistines and Ammonites, which is why God rebukes other nations for their sin. And also, it was applicable to the Israelites. So, Genesis 2-3 teaches us very clearly that the Sabbath was instituted at creation. Now, Exodus 20. Let's look a little bit at our text this morning here. And the wording of this commandment in Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now here's the reasoning. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What we see here is the logic is because God did this, therefore you are to do this. God instituted a holy day, a day that is set apart from other days, which is the Sabbath. And what we see in creation is that God made man in his image. In other words, there's a certain manner in which we are to imitate, or one implication of this rather, is that there's a certain manner in which we are to imitate God. There are ways in which we cannot imitate God. We can never be the creator, for example. We can never be eternal, for example. But in the ways that we can imitate God, in terms of His character, His righteousness, so on and so forth, we're supposed to do that. So there's an imitation, just like we say, like Father, like Son. So it is with God and those made in His image, like Father, like Son. So God rested, and so we're supposed to rest. God made it a holy day, therefore we are supposed to consider it as a holy day. This is some of the language here. Now, let's think about this for example. Or pardon me for a moment. Did God rest because He was tired? No. God does not get tired. We read this explicitly elsewhere in Scripture. The Lord does not uh, grow faint. He doesn't get weary. The Lord doesn't run out of strength. Did the Lord then just... Did he stop entirely from everything that he does? Again, we would answer no. Jesus says, ironically, when he's accused of Sabbath breaking in the New Testament, he says, up until now my father is working and I work also. So God didn't stop from all working on the Sabbath day. He stopped from some working on the Sabbath day. So he's still upholding the universe by the word of his power. He's still running the world, orchestrating providence, so on and so forth. But he stopped from one kind of work. And Exodus 20 gives us a clue as uh, to why. Exodus 20, as well as Deuteronomy 5, which is the other statement of the Ten Commandments. These tell us, God did this, therefore you should stop. We should stop and think about these things. 
given the fact that we are to imitate God, and then given the fact that we are to think about these things, it seems that what we are to do is to imitate God in His thinking of these things, so to speak. God creates the world and then finishes creating the world, and it's like He steps back to enjoy what He's made, to admire His work. Now, we might think that's narcissistic, but the reason we think that is because it's narcissistic for us to try to get glory to ourselves. But for God, there's no one more glorious. So who else is God going to enjoy more than Himself? So He he does His work of creation, and then it's like He stops and reflects. Deuteronomy chapter 5 gives us another layer along these lines. Chapter 5 and verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day and to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Again, we are to think about what God has done, and so keep the Sabbath day. So on the seventh day, the Israelites were to think about God's work of creation, and they were to think about God's work of redemption. And that was what they were to be doing throughout the day. And so, basically, the Sabbath, under the Old Covenant, because this is what we're talking about right now, was a day of stopping and praising God, thinking about God for His work of creation and for His work of redemption. And God is enjoying the praise, the meditation of His people, and taking delight and satisfaction in Himself and His own work of creation and redemption. So, like Father, like Son, God and His people commemorate His glorious works of creation and redemption each Saturday in the Old Covenant. Let's turn now to Exodus chapter 23 and verse 12, where we read this. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So there is... A component of just refreshment. But what we see is that that's not the main emphasis of the Sabbath commandment. When when it is written with God's own finger on stone, the reasons given is the commemoration of God's work of creation and God's work of redemption. So that's very clearly the primary purpose of the Sabbath day. But what we also do see is that refreshment is part of it. But let's skip ahead now to... Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. We're going to skip ahead. We're going to come back to Exodus, but we're going to skip ahead because this is thematically related. Refreshment is a legitimate, but a subsidiary priority of the Sabbath. Isaiah 58 develops this further. There, there are a bunch of conditional statements here, but we could just read them as imperatives because clearly they're morally charged. In other words, clearly it's not just like if you want to do this, then this will be the result. But it's clearly like you should do this, 
And if you do this, this will be the result. So we can just read it as imperatives. So what we see in Isaiah 58, 13 and 14 are these six imperatives. Call the Sabbath a delight. Call the holy day of the Lord honorable. Honor it. Do not go your own way. Do not seek your own pleasure, which means, in other words, doing what you please. And then, sixthly, do not talk idly. Those are the six imperatives that we see in this passage here. So, very clearly, we can't just be like, well, it's refreshing for me to talk idly. Right? Or we can't just say, well, it's refreshing for me to do what I please. So what you see here is that even though refreshment in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 12 is a legitimate component of Sabbath keeping, nevertheless it's a subsidiary component. That is, it's subjected to a higher purpose. So you can be refreshed within these parameters that God has set. If you want to go outside of these parameters in order to be refreshed, you're Sabbath breaking. Right? So if you want to do as you please in order to be refreshed, or if you want to talk idly, go your own way in order to be refreshed, you're Sabbath breaking. Right? So what we see is that the point of the day is essentially worship. Focusing on God. Focusing on His greatness. Focusing on His work of creation. Focusing on His work of redemption. It is so that you would be refreshed. But you're not just supposed to go do whatever you want in order to get refreshed. You're to do this in order to get refreshed. Now, what does that teach you if you put two and two together? The the assumption is that there's something refreshing about stopping your ordinary work and focusing on God. Resting. Ceasing this other labor in order to do this particular kind of labor is refreshing, is restful to our souls. So your rest is is a subordinate byproduct of a day spent in worship. Now let's go back to Exodus. I said we would go back there after we looked at Isaiah 58. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 31. Let me read verses 12 to 18. Exodus 31, 12 to 18. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you, Throughout your generations. A sign between who? God and the Israelites. You should speak to the people of Israel and say, This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. That you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. For who? The Israelites. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel. Between who? God and the people of Israel. That in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, And on the seventh day he rested. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. What we we see here is that clearly the Sabbath functioned as a sign of the covenant that was between God and Israel. That's also indisputable and irrefutable from this text. 
That was one of the functions of the Sabbath under the Mosaic Covenant. Obviously, from what we just read. Now many object then to any other use of the Sabbath because they say, no, it was a sign of the covenant that was between God and the people of Israel. And the fallacious reasoning is this. Therefore, it can't be anything else. But we can easily grant and acknowledge that, yes, the Sabbath served as a sign of the covenant that was between God and the people of Israel and more. Let me just give an analogy which might help make this clear. Let's say a father, there's a father who loves his son. His son is so dear to him. He cares for him. And one year, the son's 16th birthday, to be exact, the father buys the son a car. He says, my son, I love you. And this car is a token of my love for you. It is a sign of my love for you. Well, let's think about this. The car, let's say, and sorry, I forgot to mention an important detail. It's a used car. So this used car, this used car had an existence before it became that son's car. Then let's imagine after a few years, the son sells the car. Now it has an existence after the son no longer has it. But while the son had the car, it was a token and a sign of the father's love for him. Can you understand how recognizing that one thing is one thing in one particular context does not therefore automatically mean that it's therefore nothing in any other context? Just because a used car to this person is a sign of his father's love for him doesn't mean the used car is nothing else in any other context. Nobody else can use it. It has no existence outside of those parameters. That doesn't follow. And we would recognize that when we would talk about a car, a used car being a sign of a father's love for his son. But for some reason we like to apply similar, uh, or we, we struggle to see this, the similarly fallacious reasoning when we come to think about the Sabbath commandment and the Sabbath being a sign to the people of Israel. So a thing may have more than one function. That's what I'm trying to draw out from here, from this section. Now let's look at Numbers 15, 32 to 36. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him in custody because it had not been made clear that what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, this man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones, as the Lord commanded Moses. You would say, what kind of God would do something like that? You remember we talked about that kind of God last week. A heavy God. A glorious God. A weighty God. Who's not to be trifled with. That's the kind of God that would do this. So... The last thing, that this is the last point I'm going to make from the Old Testament. Obviously, we're just doing a survey. We could go on and on and on about the Sabbath. But I'm just trying to pull out a few important verses, including some ones that are used in objection to a Sabbatarian position. And this is one of them. This is the last point I want to draw out here. The Sabbath 
the Old Testament teaches us that the Sabbath is a holy day. Really, a holy day. God takes it seriously. <clears throat> now, here's the objection that is sometimes raised. So, are you saying that people should be killed if they don't come to church on Sunday? Well, <laughs> let me be provocative and say yes, and then explain what I mean. <laughs> All right? Civil law has changed since Numbers 15, but not moral law. Which means adulterers are not put to death in this day and age in Barbados. But if we're talking about whether they deserve to die, let's consider this. Breaking God's commandments incurs God's judgment. And when we break God's commandments, we deserve to die. So that's why I said to be provocative, yes. I'm not advocating for the killing of non-attendees, nor, nor the capital punishment of adulterers or so on and so forth. I'll let the legislators deal with making just laws. But what I am saying is this. Just as the prohibition of murder and adultery are just as binding and just as serious upon Christians in the New Covenant as in the Old Covenant, so is the Sabbath commandment. And we need to understand that God is just as heavy a God now as He was in Numbers 15. Because God doesn't change. And so we need to understand that, strictly speaking, lawbreakers deserve to die. In the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant. We don't live in ancient theocratic Israel where these punishments were attached to these crimes. We live in 21st century Barbados where those punishments are not attached to these crimes. But that does not, therefore, mean that these things are not crimes against God. And we need to give that due consideration. So there's a summary from the Old Testament of the teaching on the Sabbath. Let's now look at the fourth commandment in relation to the New Covenant. We've just seen that the fourth commandment is no less holy. And we've talked about how the fourth commandment is binding and perpetual upon Christians, even in the New Covenant. So let's assume now that you're listening and you're like, I want to obey this commandment. I want to do what's right. But how? Let's look at a few points respecting the fourth commandment in relationship to the New Covenant. And I want to begin with a quote. At the beginning of the second century, i.e. year 100, Sunday worship was already established as the universal Christian practice. Let me repeat that. At the beginning of the second century, i.e. year 100, Sunday worship was already established as the universal Christian practice. R.J. Bauckham, in a book called From Sabbath to Lord's Day, which argues against the understanding that I'm bringing to you today that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. From Sabbath to Lord's Day argues against that position. Nevertheless, even they concede that by the year 100, Sunday worship was already established as universal Christian practice. This historical uniformity, combined with textual clues and theological argumentation, presents a compelling case that the apostles understood Sunday worship to be the appropriate 
day of worship in the New Covenant. Thus honoring the fourth commandment and yet clothing it in New Testament garb. So let's look at some of the textual clues that we see in the New Testament, bearing in mind that from at least the year 100, historically, this is the way Christians have understood New Covenant worship. Turn with me to John chapter 20. Verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, presumably John could be making the point that being in the grave for three days, which had been prophesied, was being fulfilled in mentioning the first day of the week. But then... Verse 19 says this, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, etc., etc. That that argumentation wouldn't fit verse 19. It might fit verse 1, because you could say he's trying to establish a chronology of when Christ went into the grave, how long he was in there, and when he came up. But it would be easy for him to say in verse 19, if he was just trying to say, on the evening of that day, Repeating the first day of the week would be redundant if that was really all John was trying to say. So what he's doing here in this section is actually repeating in order to press home a point that Jesus rose on the first day of the week. There's something significant to that. And in verse 26, John repeats it again. He says, eight days later. Now, you might think that that means Monday. But actually the way that they counted days was counting the first day and the last day. So Jesus went into the tomb on a Friday and rose on a Sunday. And yet we're told that he was in the tomb three days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. By that same kind of counting, eight days goes Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So John is making the point again... Sunday. Jesus is appearing on Sundays. He is resurrected, then he appears the following Sunday to his disciples again. Alright? 50 days after his resurrection is Pentecost. Alright? I'm not going to go through it the way I just did, but do that same counting. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, count 50 days. The 50th day, Sunday. Alright? So Christ rises on a Sunday. Appears to his disciples on a Sunday. Sends the Holy Spirit on a Sunday. This is why John, the Apostle John, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, or pardon me, chapter 1 and verse 10, calls Sunday the Lord's Day. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And everyone with any academic credibility, including, and I'm going to quote, uh, leading Seventh-day Adventist scholar says this um, or pardon me I'm not quoting him I'm, I'm just saying what he believes um, he distinguishes even Samuel Bakioki who is a leading Seventh-day Adventist scholar he does distinguish between the Sabbath and the Lord's Day in other words he says they're not the same thing 
But even he agrees that when John says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10, the Lord's Day, he's referring to Sunday and not Saturday. Alright? It's, it's very clear that Sunday has great prominence and that the Apostle refers to Sunday as being the Lord's Day. Then in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, we read this. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. What you see is that the gathering of the disciples together to break bread was on the first day of the week. So it was the, that was the normal time. And breaking bread is a euphemism for the Lord's table. That they would get together to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And so they were, they were coming together for their regular worship services on the first day of the week. Why was Paul talking to them so long? Because he was leaving the next day. Um, uh, sorry, I, I started that out by saying that the wrong way. He, he was intending to leave the next day, but wanted to stay that day in order to worship with them and talk late into the night in order to make the most of the time that he had with them. In ancient, uh, in the ancient Roman Empire, a lot of Christians were slaves who obviously didn't have a choice about when they could work and when they could not work. And a lot of them had other responsibilities throughout the day on Sunday. And so a lot of times early Christians would meet at night so this is, they're gathering together on the Sunday night to break bread, and Paul's teaching them late into the night. This is what's going on in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Now 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So he's assuming here that the churches in Galatia and the churches in Corinth are worshiping on Sundays, and he's instructing them to set aside a portion of their offerings for the relief of the poor Christians in Jerusalem. Set it aside each Sunday so that when I come, we're not going to have to do a special offering. A special collection. But what I want to point out to you is that the assumption is that they were gathering for worship on Sundays. And so, on the one hand, you could argue that Jesus happened to rise from the dead on a Sunday, and that Jesus happened to appear to the disciples the next Sunday, and that Pentecost happened to be a Sunday, and that the churches in Galatia happened to meet on Sundays, and that the churches in Corinth happened to meet on Sundays. And that by the year 100, that happens to be the understanding, the universal understanding of the New Covenant Christians. And that all of this is incidental. Or you could infer, which I think is a far better inference, that this is what the apostles were teaching Christians to do. Is to worship on Sundays. And that it wasn't left up to each church to decide when they're going to do this or when they're not going to do this. But that the Lord's Day was a thing. And as uh, Thomas Watson so aptly says, 
as it is called the Lord's Supper, because of the Lord's instituting the bread and wine and setting it apart from a common to a special and sacred use, so it is called the Lord's Day, because of the Lord's instituting it and setting it apart from common days to His special worship and service. You need to remember that the apostles were given authority from Christ to lay the foundation for the church. This is what we read in, and what we studied even in our exposition of Ephesians. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus himself personally did not teach everything that was needful for the church to know. That's why we have the epistles written by the apostles. Jesus gave them authority and the responsibility to lay the foundation for the church. And so what we infer from all of these things, though admittedly we can't read it explicitly, is that Jesus must have instructed the apostles in this manner, uh, along these lines, to teach the churches to worship, because it's the Lord's day. It's as if Jesus said, it's my day, just as if this is my supper. It's my day. Teach the churches to worship on this day. Which comes us, which brings us now to our theological argumentation. So we've seen the case from church history, it's uniform. We've seen textual clues in the New Testament. We've seen that Sunday was called the Lord's Day. Just as this is called the Lord's Supper, so Sunday is called the Lord's Day because it's set apart by the Lord for the Lord. Now we come to our theological argumentation. The Old Testament Sabbath did not point forward to resting in Christ every day, which is a common argument that is levied against Sabbatarianism in the New Covenant. It's like, well, I, I rest, I enjoy a Sabbath every day because I'm no longer striving in works of self-righteousness. And so I enjoy the Sabbath rest that that Christ won for me. Well, a couple of questions about that. What is the correspondence between that and the Old Covenant Sabbath? That they rested from their works of self-righteousness every Saturday? What's the point of correspondence there? It It doesn't even match what the Old Testament institution was, first of all. Then secondly, where do you see that in the New Testament? Hebrews 4. Well, we who, we who believe have entered His rest. Well, read it carefully. Let's go there. Hebrews chapter 4. For we who have believed enter that rest. For we who have believed enter that rest. Not have entered. Enter that rest. This enumerates a cause and effect relationship. If you believe, you enter. It's not a statement of past accomplishment. Say, we who believe enter that rest. Like you might say, we who have tickets attend the event. Just because you, if you say, I have a ticket, does not mean, it's not the same thing as saying, therefore I have attended the event. Right? But there's a cause and effect relationship between this and that. That's all that's being explained here. In case you're still not too sure about it, look at Hebrews 4 and verse 11. 
the author of Hebrews writing to Christians, saying, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Well, how do you strive to enter a rest that you have already entered? That doesn't make sense. And so what you see is that the rest that he's talking about here is actually a yet future thing. So in Hebrews 4, he's not talking about entering an everyday Sabbath in the new covenant through Christ Jesus. So that the objection doesn't really hold any textual weight. Now some might say though, but look at verse 10 of Hebrews 4. This is the clincher. It says, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now that is past tense. So what do you say about that? Well, here's what I say about that. The ESV is not great, actually, on this verse. What, what the Greek says is this. He who has entered his rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. He who has entered his rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Can you see why the ESV has tried to help us out here? It's hard to follow who are all the he's and the his's. So the ESV has tried to supply them, but hasn't done a great job. Because if the whoever has entered God's rest refers to sinners who have become Christians, then it's saying sinners who have become Christians have entered God's rest and have rested from their works as God did from His. So if that's the sense that we're to give it, which is the sense that the ESV translation implies then basically the parallel is between sinners resting from their sin and God resting from his works of creation and redemption. Which is, seems like a not really very fitting parallel. Let's try, let's try this. The whole book of Hebrews is about the supremacy of Christ. It begins by talking about the supremacy of Christ over angels. And then it goes on to talk about the supremacy of Christ over Moses. And then the supremacy of Christ over Joshua. And in verse 8, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So now we should anticipate it's going to talk about the supremacy of Christ over Joshua. And we certainly see in verse 14 that this is the case. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Okay, so we're, verse 10 then falls in the middle of a transition between Joshua and Jesus. Alright? So follow this. For so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In other words, you haven't received the ultimate rest that you've been promised yet. Therefore, there's still a Sabbath observance to be had. For He, that is Christ, who has entered His rest, that is Christ's rest, has also rested from his works as God did from his. So now what you have is a parallel between God's original work of the first original creation and redemption from Egypt and Christ and his work of new creation and redemption from sin. Doesn't that parallel fit a lot better? John 1.1 reads a lot like Genesis 1.1. 
Genesis 1-1, we know in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness uh, was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. Now, now John 1-1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. You see what John is doing? He's drawing parallels with the book of Genesis. And he's showing that what, what is about to happen is a new creation. This is the way that the scripture reads, you know. Is that God is making all things new. This is the capstone of Revelation, in fact. In Revelation chapter 21, where you see the holy city descending from above. And God said, there's no more sickness, there's no more crying, there's no more pain. For behold, I am making all things new. Therefore, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. This is the way that the scripture reads. So, Adam... Uh, was given this Sabbath to commemorate God's work of creation. An extra layer was added to it after the fall into sin, when God redeemed His people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. But when Christ comes to make all things new, there's a new creation. And also, Christ, in His work of new creation, His work on the cross, He's also bringing His people out of slavery to sin. And so what you see is that Christ is actually doing the same thing that God did in Genesis chapter 1. And in the first early chapters of Exodus in bringing his people out. Which is why you see that when Elijah and Moses appear with Christ Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know what the Greek says? It says that they're speaking about his exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In, his, in our English Bibles, it's often translated departure. What was the departure that he was about to make at Jerusalem? Dying on the cross, right? And then being resurrected and ascending up to heaven. The Greek word there is the exodus. The exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so what we see then, when we come to think about the Sabbath in the New Covenant is we see that historically it's been the uniform practice of the church from the earliest days. We see that that is due to the apostles teaching that. And we see that theologically it fits with the whole storyline of Scripture. In the beginning, in the beginning, the light shone in the darkness, the light shines in the darkness. All things made, all things made new. Right? Slavery in Egypt, slavery to sin. Rescue, rescue. Rescue by the blood of the Lamb applied to you. Rescue by the blood of the Lamb applied to you. You see all the parallels here between creation and new creation? The parallels between redemption from Egypt and redemption from sin? This is why we have a Sunday Sabbath in the New Covenant. We have the moral principle, which is that one day in... Well, the moral principle, strictly speaking, is that a proportion of time is to be set aside for God's worship. In other words, we're not just to go about our lives 
all day, every day, just maybe praying as we go, pray while we cut the lawn, you know, sing to the Lord while we drive our car, whatever. We're to stop and set aside time for worship, publicly and privately. That's the moral principle that's perpetual and abiding. A creation, God established the pattern as one day in seven, but it's a positive law, which means that it's not something that can never be changed. It's a positive law that it was Saturday as opposed to Sunday. There's nothing like offensive to God about worshiping on a Sunday or a Thursday or a Tuesday or whatever. That's a positive law, something that's not connected directly to God's character. And so the moral law can't change. We're still to set aside a proportion of time. A moral law can't change. And at creation, God revealed that that proportion of time is to be one day in seven. But the positive aspect, that which is not connected to God's nature, it would be offensive to God if we never worshipped. It wouldn't be offensive to God per se if we worshipped on a Tuesday or a Friday or a Saturday or a Sunday as opposed to another day. But because God has commanded specifically prior to the resurrection of Christ that it was Saturday, then it should have been Saturday. And because God has commanded since the resurrection of Christ that it's Sunday, therefore it should be Sunday. So the positive law has changed, but the moral law remains the same. So we, rec- we, we recognize and honor the moral aspect of the fourth commandment, but we also recognize the change that Christ has brought about in the positive aspect of the commandment. And we glorify our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, for His work of recreation, for His work of redemption. We celebrate that instead of celebrating the first creation, instead of celebrating the exodus from Egypt, we celebrate Christ's work of recreation and the exodus from sin. We celebrate this glorious truth that we were slaves to sin, we were under its dominion, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, living in the passions of our flesh. We were slaves to sin. The God of this world had blinded our minds to keep us from seeing the light of God's glory in the face of His Son. And we needed to be made new. We were corrupt, not only in body, but in soul. We were decaying and dying. We were on a downward spiral. We were, as Joel Osteen likes to say, living our best life now and awaiting only something much worse as time goes by. This is the path that we were on. We were, we were suffering and struggling here and now, and then we were awaiting hell and wrath and torment hereafter. We were in need of being made new, and we were in need of rescue. And Christ has made us new and has rescued us, has led us out from slavery. And He did that by coming to take upon Himself the responsibilities that we owed to God, obeying on our behalf. And then taking in Himself the penalty that we should have received from God. Bearing on the cross the punishment that we deserved for our sins. So that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. So that if anyone is in Him, He is a new creation. So that whoever the Son sets free is free indeed. This is what Christ has done. And this is why we worship on a Sunday. It would be going backwards in biblical history to be talking all about the exodus and Israel and the promised land when really what all of those things were pointing forward to and driving at were Christ and His redemption 
of His people and His constitution of a kingdom. So this is why we worship on a Sunday as opposed to a Saturday. Now, I know a lot of that has been very up here. And the reason that I'm doing that is because the arguments that people bring against this are very up here. And I want to both show you as well as persuade you if you're not there yet that there are good, rational, reasonable, biblical arguments here. Even if you didn't understand all that, hopefully you can at least see though when someone starts talking to you about why one day is as good as the next and so on and so forth. Hopefully you can at least understand that there are biblical responses to these things. But let's come down to ground level here as we bring things towards a conclusion. What you need to take away from this is that God makes a claim on your time. And this shouldn't really surprise you. Because God makes a claim on every other area of your life, you know. God makes a claim on your energy, what you should do, what you should not do. God makes a claim on your money. God makes a claim on the way you structure your family. God makes a claim on how you work. God makes a claim even on your attitudes. God makes even a claim on your thoughts. Why would it surprise us that God makes a claim on our time? Or why would we feel like we can submit to all these other things, but as soon as anyone starts talking about a day of worship, whoa, don't be legalistic. It shouldn't really surprise us, should it? When God makes a claim on every other area of our lives, it really shouldn't surprise us that God also makes a claim on our time. In fact, the claim he makes is rather generous. He, he, he makes a claim for one-seventh of our waking hours. Think about that. God says, six days you shall do everything else. But I want that one day in seven. I want your Sundays. This, this, that's actually, God's not like, don't do any work, move up into the mountains, give me all your time. God's like, no, go fulfill your vocations. Go bring light, order, and life in all of the areas of your work. Spend the adequate time with family. Spend the adequate time with friends. Feel free to enjoy leisure and recreation other days. But I want your one day in seven. I want your Sundays. Now, people might object that that's boring and tedious. <laughs> Let me acknowledge this. It's possible for me to be boring and tedious. But that doesn't mean that preaching, right, listening to preaching is intrinsically boring and tedious. You understand? So what you should say is, I'm not against the Sabbath, I'm against boring preachers. <laughs> right? But coming and spending a day listening to good preaching of God's Word joining our hearts together with God's people, praying together, fellowshipping together. These are not intrinsically boring and tedious things. And if they are to you, let me quote our friend Thomas Watson. People who care not for the ordinances, but say, when will the Sabbath be over, plainly reveal a lack of love for God. And here's the connection back to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Remember I said you can't break any of the others until you've broken the first one. This is, that's how this one works. 
it's only boring and tedious to you if you'd rather be doing something else. And if you can't set aside one day in seven to enjoy the worship of God, the preaching of God's Word, the prayers, the fellowship, if you find these things so tedious, to think to yourself, when will the Sabbath be over? It reveals that you've already broken the first commandment. Because something else is going on in your heart that's a lot more important than this. Whereas when our hearts are right, again, we may struggle with boring preaching. We may struggle with out-of-tune or out-of-time music. right? We may, we may struggle with all kinds of aspects of things. But those things are not the Sabbath. And again, we should say, we have a problem with out-of-tune or out-of-time music. As opposed to saying, I have a problem with one day at seven. We should distinguish where our difficulties and where our problems lie. But if we have problems actually just worshiping God one day in seven, as He's commanded, Thomas Watson's absolutely right. We got a first commandment problem before we have a fourth commandment problem. Second objection that's raised is that the morning is enough. I come to church once, I don't need to come to church again. Alright, again here, let me make a concession. The Scripture doesn't mandate anywhere, thou shalt have two services. But the Scripture does mandate that we spend the day in worship. So if we are to spend the day in worship, and we accept that, and submit ourselves to that, then two services is actually seen as very helpful. Because I don't know if you've ever tried to just be at home by yourself and keep your focus on God all day. It's very hard. It gets harder if you have little children in the home. Because they're running around screaming and this and that and knocking things over and you're like... You know, you're thinking like, okay, I'm supposed to be worshiping God and focusing on Him. Right? To pack the kids up and go back to church and be like, okay, this is actually really helpful to us. Mel and I used to be in a church where there was one service, just a morning service. And as we came into this position, we started to be like, oh man, it'd be so nice to be in a church with two services. Because we started to see it would actually be an aid to us in obeying God. The same way that it's easier to obey God when you're in, say, the company of other people uh, who love the Lord and are trying to obey Him. And it's harder when you're in bad company that are not trying to obey the Lord. So it's easier for us to worship God when we get together than it is to just sit at home with all of the list of chores to be done and all of the things on TV and all the books on our bedside table and this and that. It's much easier to actually gather. So part of the reason why we do two services here is to be helpful. Another of the reasons that we do uh, two services here, though, again, I wouldn't, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this and say that other churches that don't do two services are sinning or anything like that. But another, another of the reasons that we do this is because in the Old Testament, you see the patterns of the morning and evening sacrifice. And so, again, we're, the church is not the temple and the priesthood is not exactly one-to-one correspondence. But we do see this pattern of the morning and the evening throughout Scripture. And beginning and ending our day, so to speak. Having that start of the day, getting ready for church, and having that end of the day being debriefing and 
and thinking about and meditating on the evening service as we wind down, we think to be also a good biblical pattern. But all of that to say, I'm not really knocking churches that only do one. So be it. If you only do one, no problem. But um, the uh, we do need to understand this. However many services your church has, it is the Lord's day and not the Lord's morning. So even if your church only has one, and even if we only had one, it's still the Lord's day. So you understand, I'm trying to distinguish between... You're not necessarily a Sabbath breaker if you only go to church once. And you're not necessarily a Sabbath keeper if you go to church twice. The goal of the day is to have our hearts and our minds turned toward God all the day long. And so, whatever the case, it's the Lord's day, not the Lord's morning. And so, considering that, that we're to have our hearts toward God all the day long, two services is actually helpful. So... Then a whole bunch of practical questions arise. Well, how do you actually do this? That's really hard. Well, let me ask you this. How do you do five days at your job? Isn't, isn't the demand of five days harder than the demand of one day? So let's just, let's just pause for a second there and go, we can actually do things like spending a whole day doing something. Because we do that five days in the week. And you don't just phone your boss and be like, the demands are too hard. Right? You just are like, well, this is, this is what I have to do, so I do it. Right? You also don't... You also don't... If you're planning a vacation and your family's like, yeah, we're going to go to Disney World for the day. You know, like the whole day doing something. Right? So again, in principle... Doing a whole thing for one day is actually not really that foreign to our experience. So let's just get that real clear. And now think about this. The reason we find this hard, doing, spending this one day doing this thing, is because it competes with the other days where we're doing other things. Alright. That means it's an issue of priorities. So that's what's going on here. And we need to recognize that. The reason we find all day Sunday hard is because we're not doing nothing the other six days of the week and have the other six days to recover. But the reason we find all day Sunday hard is because we have six other days where we also have to do other things. So, what we need to do is figure out what our immovable points in the week are and put them in, and then fit, fit other discretionary things in around it. Here's an analogy. Imagine a jar, a fairly big jar, and I put in several cricket balls. Is there room in the jar? Maybe not room for more cricket balls, but yes, there is room in the jar. I could take a whole bunch of marbles and drop them in, and they're going to find their way around the cricket balls. Now is there room in the jar? Well, maybe not room for marbles, but now I can take sand, and the sand will find its way in between all the marbles. Many of us are accustomed to doing our lives something like this. And I know this is especially the case in Barbados for those who are not Seventh-day Adventists. Our work 
and our family are cricket balls. So whatever our family needs is a cricket ball. Whatever our job needs is a cricket ball. Those things go in and they just don't move. And if we don't have time to do other things, so be it. We've got to do those things. Because those things are cricket balls. Then, other things like maybe hobbies and church might be like the marbles. Where we drop them in. And it's like, alright, well I have time this week, so I'm going to go. And, okay, I don't have time this week, okay, I'm not going to go. Right? What we need to do is reorient things. And we need to go, okay, here's our empty jar. Let's, let's look these issues in the face. I'm not telling you to quit your jobs, but let's look these issues in the face. If you could either disobey God for the next 40 years on a regular basis, failing to honor the Sabbath as you should, over and over and over again, because you need to keep your job. Or, you could quit your job and honor the Lord. Which would be the, the more biblical option? Quit your job and honor the Lord. Right? If, if you could, on one hand, have peace with your family, but dishonor the Lord over and over and over and over and over again over the next 40 or 50 years by dishonoring the Lord's Day. Or you could have some awkward conversations with your family by planting your stake firmly, drawing your line in the sand and saying, this is what we do. This is what we believe biblically we need to do. And have some awkward conversations with your family, but honor the Lord. Which is the more biblical of the options? That one. Jesus said, if any one of you loves his father or mother more than me, he's not worthy of me. Right? So Jesus is not against work. And Jesus is not against family. But here's how God's law works. It's first and foremost. Above all of our other responsibilities. So yeah, but I told my friend I'd go golfing with him. Well, call him and tell him you can't come because God says that this is a day of worship. Well, my family's having this thing. Well, call him and tell him you can't come because this is the Lord's day of worship. Well, yeah, but I, I, could, I could really... It would be helpful to earn an extra few bucks. Yeah, but it would be helpful to the Israelites to earn an extra few bucks and all the Christians throughout church history as well. Close your shop. Come. This is what we need to understand about God's law. You don't, you don't do this. You don't take a relative tack with God's law. Well, I'm just going to murder someone There's just this one time. Because it's a really extreme situation. And I just have to do this. This is what I come back to. Numbers 15. Where God killed a guy for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. Everybody seems to have... At least some sense of the seriousness of some of these other commandments. But Sabbath keeping in our day and age is really by the wayside. And anytime you start talking about being serious about obedience to the fourth commandment, people start legalism real quick. But if it's a biblical thing, if the Ten Commandments are perpetually valid and abiding, even on New Covenant Christians... Right? If, as we've seen, we're to be spending the day in worship on Sundays, glorifying our glorious Savior, 
who has accomplished a new creation and who has accomplished a redemption, then what we got to do is we got to start with an empty jar. And not, not the third cricket ball that goes in. The first cricket ball that goes in needs to be, right, as we come to scheduling and stuff. I'm not making like an ultimate life thing. But as it comes down to scheduling and our time and our priorities and whatnot, we've got to get the Lord's Day in there first. Right? What I mean is I'm not trying to, get the, I'm not going to, try to put the fourth commandment above the first one or something. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But what I'm saying is when it comes down to the practicality of we find Sundays hard, here's a practically helpful way to do it. Put Sundays in first. Put Sundays in first and then find a job that works. And I, I understand many of us work jobs that are in industries that need to run 24-7. So I'm not actually recommending that you all leave those jobs. It's okay, for example, those of you who work at the airport, that's something that needs to run 24-7. The same would go for police officers, doctors. You, you, you could probably think of similar examples. Some industries need to work 24-7. So I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is if you're just, if you're just selling clothes and your boss always wants you to be working on Sundays, find a new job. Settle it in your mind that the Lord's Day is first. Figure that out. Right? And if you can't do the Lord's Day and whatever else, do the Lord's Day. Trust the Lord, honor the Lord, do what's right in the Lord's eyes, and let the chips fall where they may. Take a principled stand that, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Take a principled stand that what we do as a family is we're a worshiping family. And let your kids see that what we do, what our first priority is, is worship. Other things may or may not happen. We might have to adjust this. We might have to adjust that. We might not be able to get as many chores done over the weekend if we do this on Sundays. So be it. Then maybe we need to cancel something on a weeknight so that we can catch up on chores on a weeknight, etc., etc. So there's hopefully some practical help. So we started off a lot more academic. Hopefully we brought it down to a more practical level here toward the end. But this is, this is the close of the matter. We are to spend all day in worship on Sunday, except when we have duties of necessity and mercy to attend to. We should learn to call the Sabbath a delight, as Isaiah 58 says. The only reason God's commands feel burdensome is when we are unsanctified in that area. In other words, those who are unwilling to give God their sexuality find the sixth commandment burdensome. Those who are unwilling to give God the desires of their hearts find the 10th commandment burdensome. Those who are unwilling to give God their time find the 4th commandment burdensome. If we have a problem with the 4th commandment, the problem is not with the commandment itself. The problem is with us. And this is where the law is helpful to us in instructing us of our duty towards God. We don't do it to get reconciled to God. We don't do it to earn or merit God's favor. But having been justified by grace through faith in Christ Jesus and in His righteousness alone, the law continues to serve as a guide for us on this fourth commandment as well as on the other nine. So may we all learn to call the Sabbath a delight. May we all celebrate our glorious Savior who is making all things new and has brought us out of our slavery into life with Him.